Hello, and welcome to the fourth episode of FinTech for the People Season 5. I'm Ami Parbu, your host and managing partner of Axion Venture Lab. At Axion Venture Lab, we believe in the power of FinTech to reach those who have been left behind. As an early-stage investor in FinTech startups, we've invested in more than 60 companies across Africa, Latin America, Asia, and the United States. In this season, we're talking to industry leaders, entrepreneurs, investors, all working at the intersection of climate and fintech. So far, in our previous episodes of the season, we've talked to Howard Miller, Director on Climate at Center for Financial Inclusion, Mylise Carraro, Managing Partner of the Catalyst Fund, and Pavan Kosaraju, CEO of Aqua Exchange, to get their perspectives on the role of financial tools to reach and serve climate-vulnerable people around the world. Today, I'm excited to welcome Abhishek Gupta, co-founder of Semai, a farmer-first company building full-stack agri-tech solutions to help farmers as well as rural small businesses in Indonesia maximize their earning potential. It's great to have you with us today, Abhishek. Thank you, Ami, for having me. Before we dive in, I'd love to hear more about your journey. Can you tell us more about sort of how you ended up in agriculture and then how you ended up at an ag-tech founding a company? Sure. So, you know, basically, I'm a little bit of a one-trick pony, to be honest. I spent most of my life uh, working on uh, rural and agri problems. So, in terms of my background, I was born and brought up in rural India. But, you know, our parents made kind of all the sacrifices that typically Indian parents do that so they could get us to good educational institutions and get us the best education that was available. So, you know, after my initial education, I basically spent a lot of time looking for ways to solve rural and agriculture problem. I think some coming from a second generation of agriculture family, seeing rural India up close and have then parallelly having a privileged position, all of this kind of contributed to the desire that, you know, I should go back and kind of help solve these more difficult and kind of like challenging problems. So I basically started my career in the private sector and then I was kind of fortunate to go to grad school in the US and then join the World Bank in DC. And there I basically got the opportunity to work in the same issues across countries and over at a global scale. Basically, I was kind of part of the agriculture team, was working across various countries. But, you know, I know you are in DC, but, you know, I got kind of bored there very fast. It's kind of a little far away from the reality. And, you know, basically, so I had this whole itching that I want to get back to the region. And then basically this had this whole chance encounter where I got this assignment in Indonesia for a few months. So then after that, I've just basically spent eight years here and working on rural and agriculture programs, problems from both uh, public and uh, development finance space in India and Indonesia. And, you know, in that whole eight years, basically, I came to this uh, very clear realization. Rural and agriculture communities are facing two big challenges. Number one is by a huge margin or probably the top of the list is climate change. And nobody is affected more than the small farmers by climate change. The second is that this, this whole new technology technological innovation that we are all under, the of both IT and new technologies in agriculture, they are basically not reaching the smallholders. So while I had this realization, a couple of other things happened parallelly. I was getting a little disillusioned by basically public sector's ability to solve these problems. And I was also getting exposed to a lot of interesting and existing agri-tech startups and basically seeing how they were being impactful in various parts of the world. So eventually, one thing led to another. I decided to quit my job one week before the Italian lockdown in COVID and just kind of end, ended up taking the entrepreneurship plan and here we are, which is what is the beginning of a very, very long journey. You come with a wealth of experience here, and I'd, I'd love to dig deeper into your customers, into farmers and their needs. You mentioned a digitization that isn't quite reaching rural communities, but tell us beyond that, what are the challenges they're facing? We have two main customers. 
on our platform. So we are basically a digital platform and we have two main customers. One is farmers and the other are basically small mom and pop shops in rural Indonesia that sell agriculture inputs to farmers. They're called Tokotanis in Indonesian in the local language. So basically, although it's very early days for us, but our basically grand vision is to build what we hope will be the first integrated tech solution for rural and agriculture communities in Indonesia. Now, what does that mean in practical terms? You know, because uh, just this doesn't sound like a lot of vague stuff. So I, I'll tell you what we've done till now and what is planned ahead. We are currently solving the biggest pain point for our main customer, which is agri-retailers, through a B2B marketplace for agriculture inputs, which is basically seeds, fertilizers, pesticides. And we hope to bring farmers on that same B2B platform to be, for it to become a B2B2F platform. Now, second, we are using this whole network of agri-retailers that we've built. We are in like 3,000 villages. We've got like thousands and thousands of retailers on our platform to basically engage with farmers and solve their biggest pain points. So farmers currently, most people know this, biggest pain point is to basically get the best price for their produce. So we are helping the farmers reach better markets to kind of sell their produce to get better money from it and improve their income. So these are our two major products right now. But, you know, once you've kind of like spent all this money, resources and effort to acquire these people, we believe there are lots of these interesting markets that we can kind of like further expand to or further features of products that we can offer. Number one is that we can provide financial services on both input and output to the agriculture retailers as well as to farmers and then we can the second big opportunity or game-changing thing that we see is basically providing agro advisories on new technology especially the new climate smart technologies that are kind of coming up in Indonesia and in other parts of the world can be introduced them here that's our grand vision so we've started with agriculture inputs we've just launched agriculture outputs and then we plan to kind of like do financial services and agro advisories in the long run and maybe you can speak a bit more about that financial services piece. We know reaching smallholder farmers, anyone really in the agricultural value chain, you know, isn't always a top priority or easy to reach for traditional financial institutions. What's been your experience? What's been your learnings starting to offer and thinking about offering financial services to those customers? Our approach to financial services both uh, is kind of very heavily informed with both mine and my co-founder's experience. We just generally believe that uh, providing small ticket loans to directly to farmers is generally a risky affair. Over the years, there's also been a lot of research, both from a policy and an academic perspective, done that it's not the most impactful, also most financially prudent way to do it. So the most effective way to do it is that basically to multiple supply chain actors in the value chain, you basically reduce their working capital constraints. And that's how we are kind of seeing the financial services play for us. So basically what we'll start with, hopefully in, in this quarter itself, we will be providing supply chain financing for agriculture retailers who are very critical in the value chain for supply chain financing. Basically, they are on lending to farmers in kind and we will also lend to them in kind. Now, in a partnership approach, we don't lend ourselves, we probably lend with a, with a fintech partner right now. And then later on, we also see the same play being for people who will aggregate for farmers or the agri-retailers sometimes will buy the produce from farmers. So we also see them being a crucial player to do supply chain and lending from them. There is also this long-term play where we could also 
further provide larger working capital loans to sellers on the platform. So that's on the lending part of financial services. But then there are these other interesting financial services opportunities in uh, rural and agriculture Indonesia, one of the most underpenetrated, one of the least penetrated market for agri-insurance. Now, obviously, we are not going to do the underwriting on the insurance, but we could be a distributor for large insurance companies. That's something that we often get asked about. So, you know, there are lots of these interesting opportunities where both uh, direct financial services and adjacent financial services where we could be a distributor have kind of uh, interesting opportunities. I think you sit at, and Samai sits at this really exciting and interesting point of seeing across the agricultural value chain, right? You're helping, as you've talked about, Tokotani's agri-retailers and the farmers access higher quality inputs, financing markets for selling goods. I'd love to kind of turn to the climate lens on this. How are you seeing climate issues affecting your customers and this entire value chain? The funny thing about the agriculture sector is it's the biggest contributor to GHG emissions and kind of like climate change, but it's also the one where that's most affected by climate change. So, you know, no other industry kind of loses their livelihood for the whole season or for the whole year because of changing weather patterns. So, you know, we are we are in Indonesia. That's where our primary market is. And it's the biggest island country in the world. So climate change is real here. And we see it like every day when you at our home. We see it every day with our customers. What I can probably tell you are the most common ones that we are seeing with our customers every day. So number one is that the weather patterns have become unpredictable. And, you know, people have been saying that for decades. But, you know, they are now becoming so unpredictable that it's impossible to plan anything for it. So, you know, in this year, the rains have been so heavily delayed. And once the rains did arrive in the rainy season, they kind of like, there were massive floods. And, you know, all the, in these rural areas, which are close to the coast, they have not been able to plant. The spread of water, seawater-resistant rice seeds, for example, is still not far enough and so on and so forth. So all of this leads to basically farmers losing a month or two or maybe a whole season, which practically in terms means a third of their income is kind of gone. Now, that's the one big uh, effect that we are seeing literally on in, our, in front of our eyes every day. The other big impact that we see is basically, you know, smallholders, you know, we went through this whole phase of where there was this intensification of inputs kind of contributed to productivity increase, basically which what in practical terms is mean that you convince the farm smallholders to use more fertilizers, more chemical fertilizers, more chemical pesticides, and so on and so forth. And that kind of globally got us gains of productivity in 60s, 70s, and 80s. But that's kind of run its course, and now new technologies have come which kind of can mitigate that kind of risk of which the farmers have kind of done. But what is happening right now is that the farmers are overusing these chemicals because their yields are flattened or kind of falling. Now, the more chemicals they use, the more they took, uh, their land and their soil is cannot absorb it. And then they kind of like keep using more of it and they kind of are not being able to get out of this vicious cycle of overuse of chemicals. So I think that's kind of both economically and environmentally kind of hurting both in a micro and a micro uh, macro way for us. So these are two big things that I can kind of observe and see on a day-to-day basis. So what changes would you need to see to help address some of those challenges? There are lots of interesting ways you can do it. And, you know, we've kind of like, we are always kind of uh, racking our brain and kind of putting our heads together to figure out how to do it. So it's very important for you to kind of understand why this is important to us. So basically, my co-founder, he had uh, worked at one of the biggest organic agri-input company in Indonesia. He kind of built a massive business for them. 
and he he kind of saw firsthand that how challenging it was for him to kind of like you know introduce all these new technologies for them in fact when we started out that was one of the first pilots we did was we kind of like you know convinced these small farmers rice farmers to use this organic uh, fertilizers we even did some remote sensing work on it to kind of see if these technologies were having an impact you know when i manage projects at the world bank the whole ghg emissions kind of like making them climate smart was a part of our every project it is it is in our dna kind of a thing so we are kind of very passionate about it and you know we've not really found all the perfect solutions that can make it happen right now but i think there are a couple of things that we are doing right now and there are a couple of things that are planned in the future so what right now we have is probably one of the most comprehensive catalog of organic and climate smart products that you can find on a digital platform in the country i think i don't think so anybody else has such a large catalog so that's like the pull factor of the product so you know somebody was looking for a organic product whom you understand if they understand it they can kind of immediately buy it on our platform the other thing is that we basically are working with a lot of manufacturers a lot of uh, companies that are making these new innovative products where we can basically building an advisory a suitable advisory services that can kind of also convince the farmers as well as convince the tokotanis to stock them and the farmers to buy them so those are two things that we are doing right now and obviously in the long run there's a whole financial incentives play financial inclusion play which kind of also will encourage people to use these technologies more so digitization is the other piece that you talked about as as a core challenge we know that that can unlock significant opportunities for the entire agricultural ecosystem including as we've talked about working toward more sustainable practices How are you seeing that play out in the market? How has adoption of digital technologies more broadly gone for for you and for Samai? One of the things that what kind of like also made me do this was basically the whole fortune of at the bottom of the pyramid or kind of like building for the bottom of the pyramid has been a kind of known uh, way to kind of do business but that kind of reached its limit but then all of a sudden this whole mobile technology and everybody in a village or everybody 50% or 60% of the population having a smartphone kind of just all of a sudden opened up opportunities to develop new business model in these uh, hard to reach areas both hard to reach customers but also hard to reach geographical areas now that's where i kind of that was also one of the main main motivation to do this now what we are we are kind of overwhelmed with are uh, how uh, our sticky our customers are we have very very high engagement rates you know i mean we ha- our retention is one of the best in the in class we have like uh, people who spend so much time on the app there are people who kind of check out hundreds of the products on app scrolling through it these are not beauty products where they kind of shopping for uh, dresses or anything but it's just kind of amazing for us to how long t- how much time they spend scrolling reading about it and so on so forth. so we are kind of in all of this is mo- sometimes education but all of them sometimes they're kind of like learning about new products that are there so kind of digitization the, a mobile app that's relevant for them and it's kind of added value to them has been surprisingly a very useful product that we've seen so and that's kind of also encourage us to kind of like build a whole long roadmap on advisory on you know improving the quality of the technical information that's available on products we were lucky to also get a grant uh, from one of the donors to kind of work on it now so that's the whole piece on basically giving them technical or giving them information in a digital manner which is easy for them to use the other thing is obviously we are being able to reach very far off areas of rural indonesia where basically people have smartphones but they don't have any digital 
digital products that are relevant for them. So once there is a digital product where they can do kind of commerce, both buying commerce or selling commerce, they are kind of very happy to use it. Even our initial days, our app wasn't even the best. And we've kind of revamped the app multiple times. So, you know, that we are seeing. Commerce part of the business, Indonesia is one of the fastest adopter of, you'll see in all trends in social media, faster adopters of commerce, uh, e-commerce. So they're kind of, you, you are, we are seeing that play out for our users as well. They are very, very fast adopters of when the product makes sense. So that's on the whole digitization play. Now, the other thing that you're talking about is that how can we use it to kind of encourage or catalyze sustainable practices? So I think there's definitely some use cases from other parts of the world that when I was at the World Bank, I saw very closely that yes, tech can kind of do it. But I think that we probably need to build a full suit of products where those features or those interventions that have worked elsewhere will start having an impact. We probably believe that for digitization to start having a direct impact on a sustainability or uh, improved sustainability practices, we probably need both input advisory and input advisory financing and output to kind of work together. Because you know why that is uh, important? Because even if you have the right inputs, they don't have the money to kind of buy them. If they have the money, they don't sometimes they don't know how to use it. When they have all three, when they grow those crops, sometimes they're not the most productive crops, but there's a premium available in the market for them. So they don't have market. So unfortunately, yes, it does sound a little complicated, but we believe that a full suit of uh, services are done. There is a probably a much higher chance or probability of convincing farmers to kind of change their production systems. Yeah, exactly. No, I, th- I think that's really exciting. And I want to pause on the digitization piece because, you know, one of the things that really excites us about what you, what Samai is doing and seeing from your traction is that retention, is that sort of engagement of users. You know, it's not just about the demand is there. I think you guys are building something really exciting. What do you think is that secret sauce? What is it that has kind of gotten your engagement so high with customers? I wish I had a perfect answer to it because, you know, then uh, I would be able to give it. But I'll tell you what I mean. I think it's just we get this complimented a lot from a lot of people about uh, one part DNA of our team, which is that we have a very large team which kind of listens to the customers very regularly, which basically means that our acquisition teams are uh, very uh, customer-centric. Then we have a user research team which kind of spend all their times in rural areas. We've never hired researchers in Jakarta. They're all our research team, all our user research. They're all only in rural areas. Then we've kind of like, you know, built this massive flywheel of basically we keep listening to customers, all our products now. At such an early stage, also our whole product roadmap is basically based on uh, what the users want. And that's kind of helped us at least. We've not had to roll back a lot of features. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing, but initially for the first few features that we did, we've kind of had to go back and reduce them or remove them from it. We've also seen a competitors kind of roll back a lot of features which they had launched initially. We had this whole long roadmap on one digital bookkeeping feature. And we just realized that our customer didn't want it. It wasn't on top of their pain point. So we kind of, we didn't launch it. We didn't even work on it. So, you know, there are a couple of hits and misses on that. Basically hits where we've listened to them and done it and also misses where we have changed our behavior on it. So that's one thing I'll say. The other thing is basically that both me and yoga, because we've spent most of our lives doing this. I think what we, when we started off, we were confident that we were solving a major pain points. It wasn't like, oh, good to have. It was a major pain point. And then when we were 100 users, we were like, okay, everybody's ordering every month, great. But then we were 1,000 users. A lot of people told us, not you, the other investors, like, ah, once you get to 5,000, then people will stop ordering. 
and now we've crossed 5,000 and we have much more than that. Even people are still ordering, you know, our churn is in less than, is like two or 3%. People are kind of every quarter, almost all of them kind of like come and place an order every season. A lot of them even place an order every month, some even weekly. So it's a little crazy that we have very high percentage of users that log in every day. So I think that, yeah, I think the fact that we kind of like have solved the major pain point and it wasn't something that was kind of like a tangential thing for them is kind of one of the main reasons why our engagement, our retention is so high. At least that's our current hypothesis. Yeah, taking a customer-centric approach to find and continue to meet that need is so critical. I'd love to pick your brain on the policy side, given your experience at the World Bank and working with local governments. Where do you think the gaps are there in solving some of the challenges for smallholder farmers and for the ag value chain? So on the public sector part, I mean, I guess I, I spent uh, almost a decade trying to figure out the role they should play. And, you know, it's it's quite challenging. I mean, I think that uh, economic development and growth, I think, has been on top of uh, government's agenda forever. I think that I mean, I guess it's hard to kind of give a uh, broad comment about uh, the public sector in general, but I, I guess I can specifically talk about two large countries that I've worked in, which is India and Indonesia. In both the countries, I think less so in Indonesia, but at least more so in India, there is this constant urge to just kind of subsidize everything and kind of not let markets play their role. I, I, I generally strongly believe, I guess, having worked at the World Bank, kind of reinforced that view that even for smallholders, if you can reduce frictions in the market, actually benefits everybody. Yes, there will be some winners and losers, but at the end, the sum of it kind of like uh, they all will benefit. You know, just with the whole adoption of technology and, you know, if new technologies are kind of let are being allowed to adopt in the market, I think they play out, uh, they kind of like help the people. So I think that's how I would see it. I think that obviously the governments kind of should make all the efforts they can to make the markets work better for smallholders. Now, that is a very broad way of looking at it. There are many ways that can help. Obviously, infrastructure is one tried and tested way. You basically make it easier to reach people. But I think the new, in the new age or in the new tech, in the new world, I think if governments can build guardrails or the basically digital infrastructure that can make a huge impact. So now I'll give you an example from India. I think everybody knows this, but kind of repeating this again. When I was working on India, Geo wasn't anything and then uh, UPI wasn't a known thing, correct? It was just starting off. And then overnight, the whole adoption of uh, mobile smartphones, data and digital payment just kind of went through the roof with Janda and Geo. And that kind of opened up the wave of agri-tech uh, startups in India. Now, there are, you know, Indonesia is trying to try some of those approaches with their new, they're trying to kind of build a payment system like that and so on and so forth. So a digital infrastructure system like that can kind of like help far off uh, disconnected, geographically disconnected, but digitally connected communities reach in a, in, a, in a more financially sustainable manner. So I'd say from in the new age, I'd say the any government should probably do that. Now, the other thing that you talked a little bit about is climate change. So climate, in the last at least five years, last two, three years that I was there and the last five years generally, I've not seen climate change being a ignored topic anymore. I think at least there is an insane awareness in both developing and developed countries about what that this needs to be tackled. I think there is obviously there's a healthy debate about who will pay for it given all the emissions are happening in the developed world while the the effect is in the developing countries should they be paying for adoption or will they, should that will be a part of it footed by the development so staying aside of that debate if i look at indonesia indonesia almost all ministries all top policy makers have climate change on top of their agenda 
they've made multiple efforts to kind of convince small farmers to transition to more sustainable practices. Some kind of through market distorting interventions like subsidies, highly discouraged, but some with, you know, the government kind of runs all these trading programs, capacity building programs, trying to convince farmers to improve their practices. So I guess all of these have kind of been very helpful. And then the other thing that the policymakers can do is involve the private sector more in their whole sustainability effort, which again, local governments in Indonesia do a very good job of. We do a lot of events. We do a lot of microfounder yoga. We do a lot of events and a lot of partnerships with local governments, local district governments, other local governments to kind of like, you know, help farmers and kind of like build their capacity. And we believe that's probably how the future holds for this approach. If because it, technology is kind of making us uh, work in with these smallholders and small agriculture retailers in a profitable manner. So we can kind of introduce these more new sustainable technologies on those same technological roads that we've built. Picking up from something you mentioned about climate change is on everyone's agenda. We know agriculture is a core focus for so much of the world, particularly emerging markets. We at Venture Lab are eager to find more entrepreneurs like you and like yoga who are focused on these issues, finding new solutions. What advice would you have as an ag tech working adjacent to climate you know, in this space? What advice would you have to any entrepreneurs to follow in your footsteps? I mean, these are early days, so I don't know if I have any uh, uh, very insightful advice. I think that if you're passionate about this issue, I think you should pursue it. I mean, my only thing is that I watch a lot of videos of uh, YCs and Y Combinators. There's like the whole, you know, they, they make fun of something called the startup scene. So there's a lot of people who never have been exposed to this, want to just be in the scene of climate change or, you know, these uh, impact uh, social impact startups. I'd say do not do it if you really don't care about it because these are like really, really uh, tough problems to solve. The public sector has been at it and the uh, development sector has been at it. Private sector or large private sectors have been trying to do it as well. You know, the people have been trying to do it for 50 years. So I think that if you just well-meaning won't help. So be passionate about it. I think if you care about the issue, it it does kind of make itself work. And that's been the common thread for uh, both of us uh, because we care so much about the issue that uh, the challenges don't seem that big a challenge. So I, that would be my only advice if you want to do this, if you are foolish enough to kind of take this on. You know, because, you know, one of the things that we often get asked is why are you working on for smallholders? You know, Indonesian agri has very large plantations, very large sector. Why not kind of solve for them? You know, very lucrative, much more profitable and so on and so forth. We were just born with, uh, you know, insanity. So we've kind of decided to do that. But I think that what matters is that we're kind of like, you know, solving a real problem for a very large number of people. So that kind of keeps us up and running. Last question for me and just kind of turning to Semai's future. What is the next five years look like? What's kind of on the future roadmap and what's your vision for the company? I mean, hopefully if we do well in Indonesia, we can go outside and kind of be uh, work, uh, take our technologies or take uh, both IT and agriculture technologies that we kind of will develop over the years all over the world. So I think that's our long-term vision and we are kind of taking baby steps on it. This is probably having then done this for eight years in a different way. I don't think so. This is going to finish anything in less than 10 years. So, you know, we are just in kind of year two of this. So I'd say that we have a long-term and ambitious vision. And uh, we're happy to kind of like partner with people like Venture Lab and who kind of like are backing that vision. We are proud of our other investors who've kind of taken a bet on that. We will be able to deliver on that vision. Well, we are excited to be on this path with you all. As you said, these are tough, challenging problems, and it's excited to be with people who are passionate 
to solve them. So thank you, Abhishek, for being a guest on the show today. And thanks for this conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ami. I enjoyed this conversation. Join us next week for the concluding episode of Season 5 on Climate Fintech, where we'll speak with Lindsay Holly Handler, co-founder and managing partner of Delta 40 Studio. We'll discuss the climate fintech landscape in Africa and how we can keep working towards sustainability goals with the help of financial tools. Figuring out both the climate solution and the fintech solution together is incredibly difficult. Each one of those pieces is hard. So you are going to need a team around you. You're going to need an exceptional co-founder or two exceptional co-founders. And so I would say find the people that you are really excited to build solutions with and that complement you and just focus on bringing that team together, investing in that team, developing that team, building a great culture, because it's a long journey from idea to anything at scale. And that's also the most fun part. <laughs>